Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Money Talks. I'm Edward McBride, finance editor of The Economist. This week, we have a U.S. special. We ask how you solve a problem like the Federal Reserve, and Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, joins us to talk about the outlook for markets. Is America's profit machine grinding to a halt? Sluggish growth, poor trade growth, secular stagnation, some people call it, but it's certainly doldrums in another terminology. Let's start with banking in America, not exactly the country's most popular industry. High-risk mortgage lending, inaccurate credit ratings, exotic financial products, and, to top it all off, the repeated failure of regulators to stop the madness. And when we talk about greed and recklessness and illegal behavior, we are talking about the titans of Wall Street. Let us never forget they drove this economy into the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. There's widespread discontent among Americans that the banking industry has not been sufficiently reformed, despite the failures that led to the financial crisis. Last week, Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton signaled her support for plans to reform the Federal Reserve. I'm joined by Henry Kerr, our U.S. economics correspondent who follows the Fed closely. Henry, uh, what is it that Hillary Clinton is worried about in terms of the governance of the Fed? Well, she's worried that there's too much private sector involvement in the Fed. This is something that her opponent, Bernie Sanders, has talked about before. He's alleged that it's a case of the foxes being in charge of the hen house when it comes to banking regulation, which is one of the Federal Reserve's key responsibilities. Right. And so the foxes in this case are presumably bankers. Um, what, what exactly is their role in the hen house? What, what, what part do they play in the workings of the Federal Reserve? Well, the Federal Reserve is a bit of a curious institution. The bit of it that most people are familiar with is the uh, Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. But there are actually 12 reserve banks, uh, l- local central banks, as it were. I thought that's a bit of a misnomer, but uh, uh, regional federal uh, reserves. And these are actually capitalised, i.e. almost owned by private sector banks. And those private sector banks are able to uh, elect uh, directors of these regional feds, who in turn elect the president of the regional fed. And so private sector banks, by their ability to nominate directors, can almost, it seems, appoint their own regulator. So indirectly, what all that means is that uh, private bankers have a say both in how the the banks themselves are regulated, albeit indirectly, and also in, in interest rates, which are obviously critical to their profitability. So, so private banks uh, have, have great control over the fortunes that would in other countries be in the hands of, of government regulators. Yes, that's exactly right. And their control was watered down slightly in 2010 by the Dodd-Frank reform, That meant that some of the bank-appointed directors weren't able to have the powers that they previously had. 
but they, they, they still have some power to do that, yes. So it affects both bank regulation and monetary policy because the head of each of the reserve banks takes turns to sit on the uh, Federal Open Market Committee, i.e. the committee that sets monetary policy for the US. So that, that, that sounds totally outrageous. I mean, as Bernie Sanders says, the, the, the fox in charge of the hen house. So how come it hasn't changed until now or has only changed very slightly in the way you just described? Well, the Federal Reserve was set up as a kind of compromise between people who wanted to keep the government out of banking and people who wanted to keep bankers out of the government. And this was what was settled on uh, in 1913 when the Fed was founded, then again in the 30s when it was reformed slightly. And part of the problem is that membership of the Federal Reserve was voluntary for a long time. It was voluntary until 1980. And so uh, you had to have concessions to bankers in order to encourage them to participate in this system. Of course, they're no longer needed because if you're a nationally chartered bank in the US now, you have to be regulated by the Fed. And so what what are some of the other SOPs apart from this, this role in, in regulation? Well, because the private banks have to invest in their regional Federal Reserve, they have to provide some capital. It was agreed when this system was set up that they would receive a 6% risk-free dividend from the government every year on that investment. In today's world of low interest rates, that seems rather a lot. It's three times what the government needs to pay if it wants to borrow capital on the debt markets. Again, this was watered down slightly last year, in fact, when Congress decided that for the largest banks, the dividend would not be 6%. It would reflect government borrowing costs. But for the smaller banks, and there are about 1,900 of those in the Federal Reserve System, they still receive the 6% return, which just looks extraordinarily generous. And for some of them, it's even tax-free. So, OK, it's getting, it's getting worse and worse. First, the banks have a, a big say in their own regulation. Now they're getting guaranteed, in some cases, tax-free, hefty profits on, on the capital they put into the Federal Reserve System. Uh, the more you delve into it, the more outrageous it sounds. So uh, is Hillary Clinton, is what she's suggesting enough? Well, she's certainly right, I think, to want to get the private bankers off the boards of the regional feds. That would go some way to solving the regulation issue. The, the dividend issue could only be solved if you kicked the private sector out of the Fed system entirely, said we're going to capitalise the Fed system uh, entirely with public money, as is the norm in Western economies, uh, and then if the Fed was publicly capitalised, you wouldn't have to pay uh, a dividend to investors. And then all your profits, all the profits that the Federal Reserve makes could be remitted back to the Treasury and to taxpayers. So basically, if the US government itself put up the money that the Fed uses to conduct monetary policy, then we wouldn't need to provide these SOPs to bankers. Uh, we wouldn't need to have bankers involved in the, in the Federal Reserve system at all. That all sounds reasonable at one level, but, but presumably it is quite useful to have some kind of knowledge of the banking system, some expertise about how money gets shuffled around uh, within the Federal Reserve System. W wouldn't you lose that if you chucked out all the bankers? So you certainly want people with expertise running your monetary policy and running your regulation. This proposal wouldn't deal with the issue of the revolving door between uh, Wall Street and government. It could still be the case that the Fed could hire people from Goldman Sachs or from JP Morgan uh, to fill their roles. But you wouldn't anymore have a situation where you can have bankers simultaneously running their bank and sitting on the board of their regional Fed. So I think to achieve that level of expertise, you don't need to have that kind of uh, dual role for people. You can hire people out of the industry instead. 
Now, you don't normally associate the idea of reforming the Fed with, with Democrats. In recent years, it's been the Republicans who've made the most noise about changing the way that the Fed is run. Um, will the sorts of things that Hillary Clinton is talking about uh, appeal to uh, Republican uh, politicians as well? They might support it, but it's not their main aim. What Republicans have been trying to do is what they describe as audit the Fed. But in fact, that means making the Fed's decisions on interest rates uh, subject to greater congressional oversight, subject to scrutiny by other government agencies. Other Republican members of Congress want to see the Fed's subject to a, a rule which tells it how it has to set monetary policy. And then if they want to break it, the chair gets hauled before Congress to explain herself. Uh, now, these proposals are quite detached from, from uh, those ones and certainly wouldn't satisfy the critics of the Fed who want to abolish it entirely, like uh, Ron Paul and his son Rand Paul, or even Ted Cruz, who wanted a return to the gold standard. So they're more moderate compared with what is proposed in Republican circles. And, and how about Donald Trump? Well, where does he stand in the in the spectrum from completely abolish the Fed to uh, let's let's change its governance structure? Donald Trump is an unlikely moderate. He hasn't supported a radical reform of the Fed. But he has said that when the term of Janet Yellen, the Fed's chair, comes to an end, he will probably replace her with a Republican. So uh, an unlikely moderate moment uh, for Donald Trump there. Uh, Henry, thank you very much. Thank you. You can follow Henry for more updates on this at Henry underscore Kerr. And of course, you can tweet me at emcbride74 or at Economist Radio for your thoughts on anything discussed on Money Talks. Now, as we know, it's an election year in the US, a very unusual election year. Two candidates who are both very unpopular in the form of Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump. Lots of turmoil that political analysts have been chewing over. And yet the stock market seems strangely unaffected. Indeed, it's, it's uh, sailing along uh, in, in spite of, of this political turmoil. I'm joined by Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, who keeps a close eye on the markets for us. Philip, is everything right in corporate America or is the stock market missing something? I don't think everything is right. We've seen a fall in uh, profits from the S&P 500 companies down 4% year on year. And that's the third consecutive quarter for an annual decline. And uh, it looks as if the second quarter figures will also show a decline year on year. So the odd thing is that if the market is the expectation of uh, strong profits growth, then it has been remarkably stable over the last year and a bit, despite uh, this decline. So, so profits are falling, but companies haven't been revalued accordingly. Well, why is that? Why aren't the lower profits reflected in the, in the share price of, of American companies? I think it's the absence of alternatives. So treasury bond yields are still very low in historic terms. Interest rates, despite the uh, Federal Reserve's uh, push-up in December are still very low in historic terms. So investors don't have a lot of choice as to where to put their money. They've also become a bit more confident than mid-February when the market hit its low about the outlook for the world economy. So the news on China has been relatively reassuring. And the oil price has jumped up from its uh, lows earlier in the year and has been rattling around $50 a barrel recently. Now, in the dim and distant past, people tended to think higher oil prices were bad for economies, in, especially in the West. But this time around, uh, oil prices are seen as a symbol uh, of global demand. And the fact that the oil prices picked up is seen as an indication that emerging market demand might also be ri uh, rising and that some of the excess supply in commodities has been knocked out of the market. 
But if prices are just going up, or at least in part going up, because there's nothing else for investors, uh, nowhere else for investors to put their money, um, then that, that's a sort of a, a, a good chance that prices will plunge when investors realise they, they've overpaid. There is. The um, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio of the market, which Robert Schiller calculates, is up at 26. That's about 40% above its long-term average. Also, investors may turn out to be disappointed um, looking forward. So the forecast for this time next year, i.e. first quarter 2017 earnings, is for a 14% rise in S&P 500 uh, profits. Now, some factors may help. Uh, The dollar, which was strengthening in 2015, that uh, crimps US profit, the dollar's been weakening again, so there might be a pickup uh, in international profits at that point. But still, 14% uh, profit rise at a time when profits relative to GDP are close to an all-time high uh, and when the economy in the US barely grew in the first quarter of the year, that's a tough ask. And the markets may yet find they're disappointed by profits all over again. Doesn't this happen every year? I mean, analysts start out with very rosy projections. And as the year goes on, uh, really, almost no matter what the economic conditions are, they, they ratchet down their expectations a little bit. And then by the end of the year, we say, oh, the companies meet their profits for yes. the targets because the analysts have lowered them so much that they're not hard to meet. It's like a British pantomime in which we all know the lines, you know, he's behind you. Um, oh, no, it isn't. And in this case... Uh, Profits have beaten targets, so that's good for the US companies. But oh, no, it isn't because they've actually fallen year on year. OK, so so we're going through this charade. It looks like it'll be very hard to justify the kind of valuations that uh, American companies currently enjoy. But but how worried should we be about all of this in the long run? What, how, how strong a concern do you have about the American or the global economy more broadly? I think the worry should not be about a crash in the markets, but at the low level of likely long-term returns. So if markets are already highly valued relative to profits, and we don't think profits can grow that rapidly, then you're not going to get a very high return out of equities. We know you're not going to get a very high return out of bonds. We know you're not going to get a very high return out of cash. So looking forward, investors are stuck in this world where they're likely to earn a fairly poor return. So that's all part of a world where the global economy has struggled to gain impetus after the 2008 crisis. And we've been stuck in this period of very low rates, low inflation, sluggish growth, poor trade growth, secular stagnation, some people call it, but it's certainly doldrums in another terminology. Oh dear. So another gloomy outlook. We always seem to end on a a slightly dismal note. Perhaps next week we'll have a really upbeat Money Talks. But that's all for this week. Thank you very much, Philip. Uh, Remember, you can follow Philip on Twitter, at Econ Buttonwood. That's it from me. I'm Edward McBride. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.